prior to that finding, you know, the news media were full of the you know, culture of poverty. And if you, you know, get in below the poverty line, you're stuck there. And uh, ironically, the PSID showed that no, there's a lot of mobility in and out of poverty. Welcome to The Work Goes On, a podcast from the Industrial Relations section at Princeton University. I'm your host, Orly Ashenfelder, the Joseph Douglas Green, 1895 Professor of Economics at Princeton University. In this podcast series of conversations with leading thinkers and practitioners, we are creating an oral history of an entire generation of industrial relations experts and labor economists whose contributions to their fields have been absolutely extraordinary. Our guest today is Frank Stafford, who is Professor of Economics Emeritus at the University of Michigan and co-principal investigator of the panel study of income dynamics. He is renowned for his work in labor economics, as well as for his role in the development and maintenance of the primary sources for the study of workers. Frank, welcome to The Work Goes On. Yeah, good to see you. Having a nice sunny day here in Ann Arbor. That's very good. Let's begin the discussion by talking about your background. Where did you grow up? Yeah, I grew up in the Chicago area. My dad was uh, got involved in World War II. And uh, after the war, we lived in uh, Chicago right next to Wrigley Field. And then later on, not too much later, we moved to Evanston. And then later on, we moved to Glenview, Illinois, where I finished high school in 1958. I know you went to Northwestern for college. It wasn't far away, I guess. Right. And I got a scholarship. Plus, my mother was uh, executive secretary in the political science department, and they had faculty or employee discounts for children. So I got a really, uh, by today's prices at NU, I think I got a real bargain. Did you major in economics there? Yeah, I did. Um, And it was a a very small following as, as a major back in that time. And People say, well, what what do you do when you major in economics? They had classes, but it was people would take maybe one class and hope to use it for a business degree. But there were very few majors, I mean, relative to the size of the school and the, the ability of the students. And it was and it is historically one of the best departments in the uh, at Northwestern. Oh, my God. I had unbelievable faculty there. Um, I had uh, Robert Strotz for price theory. I had Meyer Burstein for macro, and then because I got a good grade in that, I guess I was allowed to apply for Franco Modigliani's macro class. Wow. So I had, uh, and uh, I also had the statistics from Walter Oy, who we all know. Oh my heavens! What and that's a lot of wonderful names. Uh, Walter, of course. Gee, that's that's uh, that's uh, I, he was one of my favorite people. But I, I knew he was at Northwestern, but I didn't realize, and I'd forgotten Franco was there too. That's very interesting. So then you, you now what happened next? Yeah, so I graduated early. Uh, my dad said, you know, why uh, mow lawns? Just go to summer school and you get your degree, you earn more than mowing lawns. So my dad was my human capital advisor. <laughs> and uh, I graduated in, I finished my courses in uh, December of uh, 1961, I believe it was. So I thought, well, what am I going to do? And um, I was advised, well, gee, you like economics and you're sort of thinking about business. Why don't you go and uh, get an MBA at the business school of Chicago? So I started and I was going through the MBA courses 
And how did I get into labor uh, as a field? I took George Schultz's uh, labor economics course. And uh, as I was taking the course, he was encouraging me to apply for a PhD. So I uh, applied and I, I got a, a PhD at, uh, admission and financial support. You know, that's amazing. You, you're, you're actually connecting to a podcast that we did with Bob McCursey. Uh, George, of course, who was a friend of a lot of people, I didn't realize he had a hand in your being a, a, a PhD as well. It's amazing uh, how much influence he had. Well, yeah, and then McCursey was involved uh, on my thesis exam, and then, of course, uh, George Schultz was dean, so he wasn't uh, helping me. I actually I had a great Ph.D. committee. I had Ruben Kessel was the chair, but the other committee members were Arnold Zellner and Merton Miller, and I was looking at if you were in a high-paying field as you got toward graduation, did you spend more? And uh, Milton Friedman heard about it and uses an example to sell his permanent income story in the graduate macro class. He ended up being a, a, a very valuable advisor on my thesis and actually took me out to dinner after I defended. That's actually a wonderful story. I'd never heard any of that before. Uh, yes, quite. A, so what, did, what was your dissertation about? Well, it was, they had data on financing uh, graduate education at NORC. And it was a huge sample, cross-sectional. And so, you know, this was a big buzz, the human capital work at Chicago. And uh, so you're in a field that pays well or you're one that's not, and you're about to graduate. Do you spend more? Uh, Of course, you expect to. Although Merton Miller was skeptical, he said, well, wait a minute. There's a liquidity constraint, even if they can make a lot of money. When they get out, they can't borrow against it. It's, you know, human wealth, not physical capital or other capital. Um, But it turned out that at that point, student loans were becoming available. So I was able to convince Merton Miller that maybe they would spend. And, uh, and so that, uh, that's what I did. And and they did. There was some effect, certainly. So you were really doing quantitative work at a very, very early period for labor economists. And you were certainly in an amazing place to do it. So what happened then? You, you got your PhD. It was actually from George Schultz that was encouraging me to consider a fellowship at NORC where I got my graduate support. And uh, as I was graduating, then Merton Miller was saying, gee, you know, you ought to go. Uh, maybe we can get you a job at Michigan. And uh, <laughs> Milton Friedman said, man, that would be great if you could work at Michigan. Jim Morgan is, Morgan is a really terrific mind, uh, and that would be a phenomenal opportunity. So I was hired at Michigan. And Michigan was actually doing panel studies. Uh, interestingly enough, the word panel study was dreamed up by the Ford Motor Company marketing uh, department. And I think they either explicitly or coincidentally discovered fixed effects. They could learn a lot more from people who were in the panel and gave opinions on prior products than just getting a fresh cross sample. So the term panel study actually was not dreamed up by uh, academics, but a group at the Ford Motor Company. And the term was also used by GE, which also had, quote, consumer panels. But there were ongoing panels in the 60s 
largely looking at consumption issues, which is what my thesis was connected to. And uh, then, uh, so the first day I got to Michigan, they said, well, congratulations, I'm glad you're here. You're now director of the Survey Consumer Finances. Uh, so, <laughs> I said, well, that's pretty cool. And uh, so then uh, it turned out that the 1967 to 71 was designed as a, quote, debt panel for the Survey of Consumer Finances. And it was motivated by Arthur Burns, who was very concerned about the spread of credit cards. He was convinced that the use of consumer credit would erode American savings habits. And then there were these panels. So I ended up uh, running and designing and running the panel, st- uh, the panel study of the Survey of Consumer Finances. I, I didn't stay the whole four years because I moved to the department uh, after the first couple of years at ISR. So I spent time back and forth between the department and ISR throughout my career. The, the times I wasn't out of the country or out of state for something. Let me let me bring that up. I noticed in in looking over your curriculum vitae, you have a, a big connection to Sweden. Right. My wife is Swedish, and um, if, if you have never been there, Sweden in the summer is about the most beautiful place imaginable. I spent many summers there, and even a, a winter or two in Sweden. So I got connected to a thing called the Industrial Industrians Utrednings Institute, which is called IUI. It's kind of like a a high-level research center for studying aspects of industry and the labor market, everything in the economy. And um, they became interested in creating a panel study. So I had uh, also, at the same time I was working on the consumer debt panel for Arthur Burns, I was also helping Jim Morgan design the PSID back in 1966 and 67. So I got invited to work with uh, designing a PSID type study in Sweden. We, we should we, we should add, by the way, panel study of income dynamics. Everybody says PSID, but it's helpful for some people who don't know that. That's true. That's true. Uh, so, yeah, it is a panel study of income dynamics. Uh, the big issue there was uh, related to Tobin and Friedman talking about the negative income tax and nobody knew what were the real problems and patterns in poverty except from cross sections. So one of my jobs actually back then was to try to see whether you could do a stratified sample that would oversample in a known way people with low income. And uh, they had actually Jim Morgan invited Jim Tobin to come over and Tobin stayed in residence for a couple of weeks. We tried to figure out, is there a way you can get a legitimate sample of low-income people? Of course, we didn't know that income varied so much from one year to the next. So we're kind of, uh, anyway, at, at the end of the day, we had a relationship with a marketing firm that thought they knew what were the income levels and distributions by geospatial and zip code. And what turned out was that you couldn't stratify by zip code and get enough, at least apparent, cross-sectionally low-income people. So that's how the SEO sample was born. But it, was, it wasn't it was just, gee, let's do this. I mean, Morgan was trying to resist that. So was Tobin. But we turned out it would have been very impossible because no one knew that income was so variable from one year to the next. So let, let's talk about that. The, uh, uh, the, you were involved in the survey of economic opportunity. And that was, uh, I guess, is that sort of the basis for the origin of the PSID? It is because... Uh, 
survey, the OEO was interested in income dynamics. So that's the office of, this is long gone, of course, the office of economic opportunity, which was geared really at trying to solve problems related to people who were in poverty, set up, I guess, in the Johnson administration. Right. And they approached Morgan saying, gee, we should get panel data. And why don't you just take a big sample of low income people? And Morgan said, well, we can't do that. There has to be at least a more than, you know, disproportionately large national sample. Otherwise, what are we talking about? You know, you can't just have a convenient sample because they wanted him just to do a big panel of uh, uh, SEO, OEO, observed known low-income families. But, uh, you know, again, I think uh, over time, as many generations of data have been collected, there's been a lot of mobility. So those who happen to be at low income in the SEO sample, you know, moved up and moved out and moved around. And, uh, of course, we did wait for the oversample of SEO still there today, if you want. I don't personally worry too much about that, uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm not a purist like some of my colleagues around the world. The PSID, of course, is it must be one of the best known data sources in the world. And you've seen lots of things people have done with it. How is it operating today? Well, it's going forward. Um, uh, we had David Johnson, who was director for a while. He left. So I think we, uh, we do have some new leadership issues coming up in the near future. And Charlie Brown had been working with uh, uh, helping design and run the study in recent years, but he's also uh, retiring. So we're definitely needing to bring in some new people. And it's, it's, a, uh, it's a challenging job because we're trying to listen to the research community, create new ideas, but also have, you know, long-term continuity for certain elements. So uh, it's, it's, a, it's a challenging job. It's, as a data set, it's fascinating because I was, they had a big NSF meeting several years ago, quite a while, of all the big NSF data sets. And so we go there and I study the stars and we get ter so many terabytes per second and so on. Um, and I said, well, we study people and so on. But what was interesting was that I described all these relational structures and the researchers there realized that this complex panel of people with the family connections and, you know, comings and goings was actually far more complicated as a relational data structure than, and, than these science data sets, which, you know, you got galaxies and individual stars within the, the galaxy and all that. <laughs> So those are basically relational data structures, you know, one to many, many to one. And um, I, I learned about that running the panel study uh, SCF because we were partly supported by the auto companies. And so while researchers care about families, the auto companies cared about cars. So they have a car file that took the cars. So if you have a family that has no cars, well, what's, what's so what? So they wanted to know, well, what? For the cars, from a car perspective, what kind of families own own them? <laughs> they wanted to have these car files, but that's the same idea as these complex uh, relational structures, which are now prevalent in the PSID. Um, so it's, we have a had some brilliant, pro, totally brilliant programming to actually create relational data that can be used online. Uh, almost all the basic data are available without you know any confidential file protection. It, obviously, if there is an issue, you cer certainly need to have that. We've had some brilliant programming and uh, it, because it requires much more, once we brought in these child development supplements, uh, 
So way back, even in the 80s, we're saying, gee, you know, we should start interviewing these families' children when they're zero to 12, and they're eventually going to become the adult sample as they split off and form their own families. But we know what their childhood is like. So we wrote proposals every year, and every year we'd resubmit them, get them rejected. Finally, in 1994, when I became the full-time director, uh, we got lucky and were funded to collect, as of 1997, the child development supplement. So we've been doing that ever since. The reason I mention this is because it just highlights the complex relational structure. And you can think of, here's a kid, here are these parents, what kind of kids do they have? Yeah. So it's just like the car file back in the old days. But we have a programmer that runs this uh, just unbelievably talented. I'll brag. I don't think there's anybody that has data as complex as ours uh, and it then still be usable, uh, you know, online, downloadable. Yeah. What I'm going to ask you a question that's a little unfair, but uh, I just think it would be fun to hear your response. Uh, what, are, what are, let's say, two or maybe three things, studies or, or research papers or findings that have come out of the PSI idea that are your favorites? Well, I'm biased because um, I've written a lot. And I, I'm, I like some of the things I wrote. But the first one, of course, the hallmark finding was the extreme volatility. There's been a lot of work by many people, Gottschalk and Moffat, others, looking at changes in income variability. Has it become more volatile, less volatile? So that's a key uh, point. And it, it shaped policy because prior to that finding, you know, the news media were full of the you know, culture of poverty. And if you, you know, get in below the poverty line, you're stuck there. And uh, ironically, the PSID showed that, no, there's a lot of mobility in and out of poverty. What was interesting, based on that, there are some people extrapolated, said, well, if there's a lot of movement of income, from year to year, there must be even more mobility across generations. <laughs> and it turns out there's a lot of persistence of lifetime earnings across generations. So you get a contrast between short-term dynamics, which are paired to not knowing, more volatile, but then long-term, everybody's saying, well, the American dream, blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> but then when you look at it, we look like a lot of other countries in terms of uh, the extent to which there's longer-term carryover. And there are people who are at low income levels of parents on a persistent basis. So if you look at intergenerational mobility, again, you get regression to the mean. So, you know, if, you're, if your dad was Bill Gates, you're probably not going to do quite as well as your dad. And if your parents were low, you're going to do better. But there is, uh, so there's more mobility in the mid range, obviously. But there is a group of people who are who have troubles across the generations. Yeah. Uh, so that, so that those are really hallmark findings. A second major area that has been uh, used is the uh, fact that the, as of 1984 and forward, the panel study of income dynamics has included financial and wealth measures, including pensions in the last uh, 15, 20 years. And so there's a lot of interconnections between the labor market and financial dimensions of a family for example, we did studies on uh, refinancing mortgages, which we've had mortgages way back till the first wave of PSID, but we were looking at refinancing mortgages and others have been doing this. Uh, and what we discovered is that, you know, with the modern instant refi, people are using their 
home equity is kind of an ATM is one phrase. So, uh, however, uh, usually you're able to refinance without penalty. And so what we observed is that when the rates are low, like they were here a year or two ago, the refi rates are high. And when the mortgage rates go up, refi rates fall. But when the refi rates are high, the share who are refinancing to a higher balance goes up. So it seems like, you know, not exactly optimal economic behavior. Um, what are they doing? And there's actually a couple of papers saying people have no idea what they're doing. But what we discovered is that it was um, they're basically searching for liquidity. That is, they had a labor market crisis or a divorce or some other financial. But a lot of it was labor market, uh, unemployment and job problems. And they would refinance uh, even to a higher rate on the entire balance. So their marginal borrowing costs are really almost in credit card rates, trying to cover a cash flow problem or consumption commitment as the phrase is, is now used. So that was another uh, area and it shows up in the pensions. So what happened during the financial crisis? Uh, there's a lot of research showing that people did borrow against their uh, pensions. We have questions on, did you cash in a pension or IRA? And yes, they were doing that for the same kinds of labor market and family transition reasons uh, as refinancing, uh, including uh, refinancing because they had uh, other other problems, even with their mortgage. So they're trying to struggle to get reduced payments. Uh, they try to refinance one way or another to maybe to a riskier loan. We should done some work on that. But um, the uh, uh, key, key thing is that people are searching for a way to get out. Again, they, they don't want to get into bankruptcy, so they take some pretty substantial steps, including uh, trying to work more and so on. In, in case of the pensions, uh, they borrow and they pay back. So they borrowed by partially cashing in during the low prices in the stock market, but then they repaid buying back stocks that had gone up in 2010 and 11. What's wrong with this picture? So there's some bad luck there. And... Um, the other thing that we showed, and this is only in the PSID data that I know, uh, it's not available elsewhere, because we have labor market questions on, you know, are you still, do you currently, you're under 62 and you're over 40, that's what we looked at in the sample, are you participating in a pension? Well, prior to the great great housing recession, their husband and or wife were participating, the Great Recession comes along and they have these same adverse events that lead them to uh, try to get money one way or another. But what they were doing was they ceased participating. So, you know, they're giving up, say, matching rates and uh, very costly for long-term pension accumulation if you start at age 40 and 50, you know, cashing in your pension balance yeah. at, at a, uh, and, and, and then stopping to participate and giving up the match from your employer. So that's a big area. Let me ask you a question related to that. How many countries actually have PSID type data now? Yeah, lots. Um, the first one that followed us was the German Socioeconomic Panel. And in 1984, I was in Stockholm with uh, my wife on a Savannah with our kids. And we were invited to a planning workshop for the German Socioeconomic Panel. We drove through East Germany and came through literally a hole in the Berlin Wall to get into West Berlin. Um, and uh, that was the design for starting the German Social Economic Panel, which has had a lot of success. They've been doing this for more, more than 30 years now. And they're uh, also able to bring in East Germany when the 
East and West Germany were brought together. So they have a unified national panel. But there have been a lot of others. There's the British Household Panel, also started in 1984-86. It was actually, I think, motivated by Margaret Thatcher. And again, the British have a tremendous history in quantitative data collection. It's really impressive. So they wanted to get involved, and they had a remake of the British Household Panel to a panel, a very ambitious panel, big sample, called Understanding Society. It was a really brilliant economics and other discipline panel. Uh, and then I got involved advising uh, on an Israeli panel around uh, 1999 or 2000, spent some a week or two in Jerusalem. And I believe they've been using the data. I haven't been able to follow what they do. Then there's also the Australian Household Income and Labor Dynamics. And I worked to advise them on designs and visited Australia to have a follow-up meetings on how things were doing. And they has, uh, there's also a, a Singapore panel, which I spent two visits to Singapore to help them design. Uh, it's a very interesting panel because it's got the PSID elements, but they have much better connection to government records on your income and, and mortgage payments. So they don't have to ask, you know, what's your mortgage? They have government records on all that. That, that seems to be more, more common in the U.S. as well. Is there any talk of trying to link administrative records uh, with the PSID? Yeah, that's a big area. We've definitely, I mean, we've got, you know, birth certificates, death certificates. Uh, we've got records of where they went to school, link, linked into semi-confidential. You know, it's, it, it's, the data aren't confidential, but in the context of the PSID, they would be confidential. Detailed questions about each grade school and high school that they attended. So there's a lot of administrative links uh, that we've been doing Plus, there's been a tremendous growth of geospatial <laughs> labor market area commuting measures, things like that. Mm -hmm. So there's a huge number of things that can be merged in from external data. Potential. Mm -hmm. And so that, and again, that just adds on top of the complex relational structure of the families. We're coming to the end of our podcast, but I, there's one question I have to ask you about. And that's, of course... Our old mutual friend, uh, George E. Johnson, uh, who both of us have known for, knew, he's no longer with us for a very long time. And I noticed the University of Michigan now has a chair in his name, the George Johnson Professor. Absolutely, yeah. No, George and I did a lot of empirical work together outside the PSID. Uh, that's when I was primarily in the econ department. And we also got involved in... Uh, actually three simple general equilibrium models. Uh, they're all the same structure, but one we got in a sort of a controversial paper, which George loved because he was a iconoclast, but we showed that if you have convergence from your trading partners up to your technology, it's gonna make your country worse off. There's some very strong general <laughs> equilibrium effects. And the fact that the, the trade economists weren't so happy, I think George just chuckled to himself. Uh, he laugh about it, you're right. We, we, well, what was the bizarre thing was, I presented that at a Stern conference and Paul Samuelson said, my God, this is right. This explains why the uh, British didn't let the Indians have textile mills. Um, <laughs> and, and so I got a call a couple of weeks later from uh, Fisher Black, he said, Frank, I heard you had an interesting paper on, uh, an interesting paper, he didn't say about what. And George and I were working on occupational exclusion, which is another version of that theme. 
And I said, yeah, we got some really interesting results on occupational exclusion. And Fisher says, you labor economists, I'd never get into that kind of a topic. Oh, oh yeah, it's not that one with the trade paper. So we had three papers that we worked on. It's an interesting thing because I also know that you work in the Department of Labor, as did George, back in the 70s. What did you think of that? Well, that was quite something. That was the ASPER, uh, Assistant Secretary for Policy Evaluation and Research. I think you were the first uh, in the line of academic visitors to that job, being sort of the local economist expert. And then George followed you. And then uh, I, and then Dan Hammermesh was there. And then I followed Dan and Alan Gustman uh, followed me. And I don't know what happened after that, but uh, there's a lot of uh, humor and a lot of friendly friction between us and the career folks in the labor department. <laughs> yes, I always, I always enjoyed that. Actually, what what now? There there are many. I, I think we should. This is a little add a little injected humor. All of us have a George story. Do you have a favorite George story? Wow, I got a lot of them, but uh, well, just him him enjoying getting all these people exercised about the trade thing was pretty interesting. But he. In the labor department, of course, you know, he was great at uh, kind of stirring up friendly but serious controversy. And uh, as you know, it was called the Office of Policy Evaluation and Research. And so that, there's a various policies and they had various commercial uh, firms, eva- quote unquote, evaluate these policies and didn't meet George's standards. So he's, they had this meeting and he said, well, the only thing I can tell about these reports that makes one different from one another, they don't have any different content, which is to say there isn't any, but they weigh more or less. <laughs> he was my, the first time I met him, he visited Princeton and he had a, I walked into his office and he had a box uh, and it said Edgeworth box on it. <laughs> so I walked up to the box and I said, uh, George, there's nothing in this box. Yes. He said, it's an Edgeworth empty box. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was the, um, there was actually an old kind of AEA readings book uh, and was a kind of critique of economics and it was titled Empty Economic Boxes. So we have all these theories and then when you look at what do they really inform about the real world, a lot of them don't inform very much. So that was the term he actually this paper in the AEA handbook was called Empty Economic Boxes by, a, I think it was a guy named Clapham or something like that. If I, remember. You know, they, I, I remember another one, too, in the Labor Department where he, he it was a meeting or something, and uh, George was, sta- was standing up, I think, saying something, and uh, whatever he said, someone in the, in the room, it might have been somebody well-known, I don't remember, said, George, 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 just wait a minute, step Step back a minute. Just step back a minute. Remember that? Yeah, yeah. So George, George stepped back out the door and never came back. <laughs> he left. I heard about that one. I didn't. Yeah, I didn't. I wasn't there. But yeah, was that's good. I mean, this is the. And so there was a lot of friction. We we had, and it was friendly friction. Friction mostly, I, I would say. Well, I think uh, with that we we have a little uh, touch of humor to end it with, and I appreciate your joining us today, Frank. Yeah. Our guest today has been Frank Stafford, Professor of Economics Emeritus at the University of Michigan and Co-Principal Investigator of the Panel Study of Income Dynamics.
Please join us again for the next episode of The Work Goes On, an oral history of industrial relations and labor economics from the industrial relations section at Princeton University, when we will speak with Daniel Hammermesh, the Sue Killian Professor of Economics Emeritus at the University of Texas at Austin. I'm your host, Orly Ashenfelder. Thanks for listening. The Work Goes On is a production from the Industrial Relations section at Princeton University. For more information on our people, research, events, and programming, visit our website, irs.princeton.edu.